1: By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones.
2: Hello, I am Cheryl Jones and I want to welcome you to Good Grief where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today I'm happy to welcome Kevin Thaddeus Fisher-Paulson. Kevin lives with his husband Brian, their two sons, and their four rescue dogs in San Francisco. When not writing, he serves as captain of the honor guard for the San Francisco Sheriff's Department. He earned a degree in American Studies from the University of Notre Dame in 1980 and subsequently studied writing with Dorothy Allison, Jessica Hagedorn, and Steve Abbott. And he's attended courses at the University of Iowa and the University of Oregon. Kevin contributed regularly as a writer to The Sentinel, and his stories and poems have been seen in The James White Literary Review, Amethyst, Oberon, rfd and suburban wilderness his essay virtue enough for miss girl was published as part of an anthology when love lasts forever by pilgrim press and his plays and monologues have been produced in the odc Summerfest theater rhinoceros and the national aids theater festival kevin contribu- contributes irregularly to the national public radio perspective series welcome to the show kevin Thank you. I, I'm really happy that it just accidentally turned out that this is the week we'll be talking because, as you and I both know, our marriages became legal USA-wide this week.
3: Yes, 50 states and Ireland. So we're doing, we're doing rather well this week.
2: <laughs> Ireland was a surprise to me. That was thrilling.
3: <laughs> Actually, uh, I had several of my Irish friends write to me to tell me that they were a month ahead of us.
2: <laughs> so
3: So <laughs> they they're celebrating for bragging rights.
2: Yeah, bragging rights for sure. So there's celebration but also the other reason I'm happy to have you is um many of us have gone through a lot to get to this moment and that's of course part of what your story is about what you personally went through and I don't I I think it's important not to um Give the false impression that now everything's fixed
3: that's absolutely right this this is a benchmark this was a, a moment in that long march towards freedom that we've all been involved in, but just like the loving case did not end discrimination against blacks, so does this this case not end discrimination against gays, lesbians, transgender intersex, bisexual questioning all of us because there are still so many unopened categories, but it was a moment in the long journey to stop and say,
2: "Yay, let's celebrate yes, significant and then
3: tomorrow we can get back to marching
2: yeah, and for those listeners that might not know i I think most people know what the loving case was, but that was the case in which the Supreme Court um decided it was unconstitutional to discriminate against couples from different races in terms of marriage.
3: Right, ending all the miscegenation laws.
2: Yeah, so this is um, another step in the process of, of real um, equality. And I do think that, that the law has an impact on attitudes because um, uh, people get kind of used to the truth of that. But, of course, it doesn't change everything. So what we're going to talk about today is, is your book, mostly, A Song for Lost Angels, which I want to really thank you for. I enjoyed both, enjoyed is a funny word, isn't it? But I I was moved by reading your story, the story of your family, and also appreciated very much your sense of humor. Thank so you. <laughs> you can feel free to bring that in at any time.
3: <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'll wait for the opportune moment.
2: Yeah, I'll bet. <laughs> um, so... The way I received the your your family's story um it really was both a story about parenting and the griefs and joys of that and a story about a system that um dealt with you out of such a deep uh homophobia um it It was um it I you know I have a lot of friends who've adopted, and I've never read or heard a story that was quite as as wrenching as what happened to you and your husband
3: well, that was one of the reasons why I wrote a song for Los Angeles because as we progress through the twenty first century, more than twenty five percent of all gay and lesbian couples are either. Uh, have either children or seeking to have children. And so in in some ways, A Song for Lost Angels is a cautionary tale to say uh, the the journey isn't over. There is still prejudice in the system. There are still people who will not let you do things just because you are gay or lesbian and be careful of that. But having said that, jump into the pool anyway.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, I think that's uh one thing that stood out for me was um just the fact that people who were were claiming a kind of moral high ground were doing a lot of lying and finagling to um to misrepresent your story. You know that
3: Uh, when I was in my younger and more rebellious days, I used to call the religious right the religious wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was because so many of the tactics, uh, and and in this situation, so many of of the things that I faced were what I considered morally bad choices in order to enforce uh, an ethic and theology that they really couldn't defend. Um, So, yeah, you know, it, it... it's very funny, though. Some of the people who've, who've really changed or, or shared their change with me after reading the book, um, a born-again Christian minister in Southern California called me, and she said, I, I want you to know this. I'm bringing your book to my church. And I said, well, that's not going to make you popular. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Likely not. She said, no. She said, she said, we need to know this. We need to know when we've crossed that line from religious ethics and into rigidity, from we, when we've taken what we've, we call Christian love and make it hate.: The story of the, how the book got to be a book, and you haven't asked me that question, so I'm going to answer it.: Not anyway.
2: yet. I, I would, but I haven't I, I didn't start there for sure, so, so how the book got to be a, a book is a good a good question.
3: because it does with, it deals with Christianity ethics and all that. Um, you know, in the book you'll find that, you know, that I have a group of friends from a wide variety of beliefs and disbeliefs, including one of the central characters, it was my best friend who was a Wiccan priestess. And, however, this started out when I was raising the triplets in my house and. If anybody out there has ever raised triplets, they know that you get up, you feed the baby, you burp the baby, you change the baby's diaper, you rub the baby's back, you you get the baby to lie down, you let the baby fall asleep, only to pick up the next baby and feed the the baby, only to pick up the third baby. And this was, of course, with one of the babies in intensive care across the Bay Bridge. So, and I had all these really nice friends going, oh my gosh, how are you doing? Any support I can give you? What can I do for you? So I ended up at two in the morning sending out little updates, like, by the way, for all the people I haven't called back, here's what's going on. And they were Mm. just a collection of emails from a very tired guy letting people know, hey, this is what's going on in the case, this is what's going on medically. And I didn't think anything of it. Um, So... A few years after the events in this book, a friend of uh, a good friend of mine um, walked up to me and she said, "I want to give you this email." And it was an email from. I said, "Who's it from?" She said, "It's from a secretary who works in the same building as my sister in Salt Lake City." And I said, "Okay." And I read the her the email, and the email said. I just want you to know I've been a Mormon all of my life and have embraced the teachings of, of the church. And as such, I thought that it was morally wrong for two gay men to try to raise children, that, it, that, that there should be no gay marriage and that they should not have children. But fundamentally, reading your emails, I, real, I used to think there was a wide difference between you and me. And I realized you don't pay a gay mortgage, you pay a mortgage. You don't have a gay car, you have a car. And you have the same struggles as we do raising children. And I said I said to my friend, Barbara, well, thank you. This is really wonderful. And she said, this is why it needs to be a book. And I said, well, that's great. But as you know, Barbara, I don't keep anything. She handed me a binder of 500 emails that she had saved. She said, what you don't know is each of us who got these emails forwarded it to 20 more friends, who forwarded it to 20 more friends. And she said, and there's... Hundreds of people who want to know this story turned out all right, and mm. that's that's part of mm. that's part of healing, part of community. is yes. letting the community know this is how we turned out.
2: So we've kind of started at the end of the story. Let's go back to the beginning of the story, um, in the sense that um, your your husband Brian is uh, is or was a dancer, um, which is a pretty um, a uh, lot of travel, a lot of late nights, all of that. Oh yeah. Uh, and and uh, you had a little more time, but I don't get the impression much more time. How did you get to the point of deciding to parent and then agreeing to parent three newborn infants? So how
3: it how this all started out was I had a midlife crisis where I couldn't figure out the, what the meaning of my own life was. This is about my third or fourth midlife crisis. <laughs> but in this one, I decided, okay, I want my life to have some meaning. And the best way of, of that is through children. And yes, Brian was a dancer. Brian, by the way, still is a dancer and shows no signs of retirement at 52. At 52, he's starting a 20-city tour. But I digress. Um, so one night over Chinese food at Yatwa's, which is our favorite Chinese restaurant, uh, the eve of my 41st birthday, I said to him, Brian, I really want to do this. Um, I want to raise children, and um, and he said, "Well, I, I want to wait till I've." Re-. And I said, and he looked at me and he said, "You know what? You're right. When am I ever going to retire? Let's jump in and do this." Of course, we were. We did a lot of exploration about foster care and adoption and all that, and surrogacy. And ultimately, we decided that we did not want to do foreign adoption. Or surrogacy, because we felt that there were so many children in the United States who went unloved in the foster care system. One of the little things that one of the little things that really convinced me was we talk about all the children who I say are imported from Central America and from China, and it's good that there are people who take care of them, and I respect and honor their choice. But we don't talk about the number of children who are exported out of the United States to Canada. Germany, and other countries, a lot of the time because they're black, um, and there's less preference in the foster care adoption system for black children. That's unfair, but that is the way life is. And we wanted to give children a chance. So we filled out uh, maybe 5,000 sheets of paper in the foster care adoption system and took fingerprints and had them look at the screens in our windows and the fur on our dogs and on March 30th, a social worker called me and she said, "Congratulations, you are now eligible to be matched for for foster care adoption." And she said, "However, take it, don't think this is going to be in a rush." She said, "Generally, it takes about six months to a year to place anybody." Two days later, on April 1st, I was sitting at my office at work and the phone rang and Brian said, "Are you sitting down?" And I said, I uh, know, yeah, but I can be. And he said, they want to match us with children. And I said, children? And he said, yes. He said, newborn triplets, one of whom's got a hernia, one of whom may have a broken arm, and the third has a hole in his heart and a colostomy bag and might not live. And I said, I said, I'm hoping this is not an April Fool's joke. And he said, no. Uh, I said, well, how long do they they give us to decide? And he said, "Till 3 o'clock. So we called his mother, and she said, "Um, just one child with a colostomy is almost an incredible burden. Are you sure you want to do it? And that sounded like a good challenge. (laughs) So
2: I said, sure (laughs) Well, of if course... If my mother-in-law hu-
3: thinks I can't do it, it must be a good thing to do. It must
2: be a good thing to do. <laughs> um, you know, of course, that's just a profound... I mean, the love that you exhibited towards those kids to get them a year later all completely healthy um, is mighty. And then at the end of that, to to lose them, I've actually... Um, I was separated from one of my kids from the time she was four to eleven, so I have some understanding of what that feels like. Uh, ju- it's just the worst grief yeah. possible. Right. Yeah. And um, I wonder if you could share that um, very moving part of your book um, towards towards the end of your struggle to try to try to keep the kids. Um, 10,000 miles earlier. Yeah.
3: yeah. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> uh, I, w- I was flipping to that page in the book. Uh, <clears throat> ready? Here goes. Papa, the triplets, and I were in that big blue Saturn view yesterday when I noticed that the odometer was at 9,999. We kept driving for what seemed like hours before the numbers flashed 10,000. 10,000 miles in the past year. Our first car was a hand-me-down from Nana, a gold 78 Thunderbird that we christened the Queen Mary. Our next car, a white Ford Escort, was called the White Star, prone to accidents. And the following blue Escort we called the Batmobile. But when Papa and I got the view last year, we just kept waiting for a name to inspire us. And after 10,000 miles, we were still waiting. 10,000 miles earlier, we had been driving a budget compact. We had the duplets living with us. And we had just made arrangements for Kyle to come home. 10,000 miles earlier, our biggest worry had been whether Kyle would get out of the hospital. 10,000 miles earlier, we spent every night at the neonatal intensive care unit, singing show tunes to a baby boy missing his intestines, and wondering whether he would ever eat like a normal baby. 10,000 miles earlier, all we knew was we were caring for three babies, one of whom might not live, and all we could do was put one mile on top of the other, doing what we could for the triplets. A week before the odometer milestone, one of the deputies I worked with saw me getting into the car and said, I always took you for a soccer, Mom. And this was a soccer mom kind of car. But this car was just one of the ways that Papa and I had changed. A lot of people said I was gentler than I used to be. And I didn't cut off quite so many cars. And I didn't accelerate through yellow lights anymore. I had the kids in the back of the car. And kids gave me a conscience. I even found myself letting cars in at a merge. And I liked being gentle. I liked smiling and waving the pedestrian on, even when I thought he was taking his sweet time walking across the street, in 10,000 miles, I had become just a little more patient. That patience sometimes even accompanied me into the house. Some nights I didn't get any housework done at all, and the closest thing I did to cooking was dial Geneva Pizza. But I had the patience to sit in the living room and read The Cat in the Hat, Because even though Joshua and Vivian did not understand the words, they liked the sound of my voice. And Kyle, well, he just liked the way the book tasted. 10,000 miles, and I'd begun to allow for the small possibility that there was a point to being on this planet, and that my purpose just might be raising the triplets. 10,000 miles earlier, my carefully grown cynicism began to fall apart, and I found myself thinking that maybe just maybe there was a force that I did not understand that made those wheels go around.
2: I, I really feel you captured some kind of depth about parenting in that passage. So I want to thank you for it. Um, of course we'll be talking about the loss of them, but, um, It's good to hear the parenting of them. And it's time for our first break. So uh, we'll be, be back in a few minutes. Listener, Listeners, you can take these few minutes to go to my host page to connect with me. There's There are links to my website, social media there. And you can find Kevin Thaddeus Fisher-Paulson at his book page at fearlessbooks.com. That would be um, a song for Lost Angels. At his Facebook page of the same name. And for current writing, his blog on the Gaze with Kids website, back in a few minutes. <laughs>
0: We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up?
3: Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness.
1: You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones.
2: Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones. I'm here with Kevin Fisher-Paulson, the author of A Song for Lost Angels, about triplets Kevin and his husband, Brian, parented for a year, bringing them from being at-risk newborns to a state of robust health and then losing them as a result of the homophobia that still exists in the foster-adopt social work and court systems, and... um, you shared before the break a kind of picture of of what it what it was like to parent them but i know at that very same time you were under the threat of losing them um which of course being being that i work in the grief um world i know that sometimes that makes things so vivid too it's um it's a fear and it's also um, shines a light on on what you're doing at the moment. Well, you know, there's a Buddhist
3: maxim that says, treat every moment of your life as if it's the most important moment, mm. knowing that ultimately it may not matter at all. And, and that's what we had to do that year. We had to treat each and every moment as a moment of joy, a moment of changing a colostomy bag at 2 o'clock in the morning, and being there and being present, knowing that at any day we could lose the children.
2: Yeah, you know, this brings me around to my own experience, because after I, I lost my daughter, I then was a guardian. I ultimately adopted that child, but not until she was 7, and there was some way that knowing I could survive losing a child made me think I was a good candidate for doing the next thing, which <laughs> my friends thought I was nuts, but um, because no, we I, never know. I completely know. get what you're saying. <laughs> uh, we never know, do we? I mean, when it comes down to it, we do not know, and um, I, I loved... My youngest child who who was the one I ended up adopting um ho- completely wholeheartedly i didn't hold anything back out of the fear that she wouldn't remain
3: you know um one of the things for me is that when I adopted the the boys who i I'm now raising, I knew better than ever that i any second they could be gone any single moment so. Every single thing has to be cherished. Every single moment, I have to be present and be there. And, and, you know, in some ways, uh, in some ways, I'm a better parent for having gone through the loss. Mm. Uh, I I have no idea what the true meaning of life is. And I keep asking God and he doesn't tell me. (laughs) But, Um, he's saving it for the final, final quiz. Um, and however, among the things that I've learned is fundamentally, I did do a good for these triplets. My husband and I gave them the best running start they could have had in life. But ultimately, ultimately the universe forced me to let go of result. And so when I parent the children I'm parenting now, I let go of results. If he doesn't get an A in a test, you know what? He didn't get an A in a test. Mm. If he didn't score the winning, uh, winning ball in either basketball, soccer, or anything he plays, he didn't. That, but that's the way. That is part of life, and we're enjoying it together. So every single moment of sadness and every moment of joy, he knows I'm going to be present for it. Uh, I imagine it's the same with you.
2: Absolutely, to the best of my meager ability. <laughs>
3: Well, it, you know, As
2: most it, it, I can be.
3: You know, in terms of meager ability, one of the things that I've done this year is I have been their their soccer coach and their cross-country coach and their basketball coach and their baseball coach. And let me tell you, the only thing I knew about soccer a year ago was that the Europeans liked it better than I did, and they called it football. That was all I knew.
2: <laughs> but I know. In, I know. I, I'm resonating because I, I've been to a lot of soccer games, and I was like uh, the one that everyone said was allergic to competition. <laughs> I was just watching the World Cup yesterday. Was it yesterday? I, yeah. Uh, okay.
3: Yeah, I knew it was yesterday. I know it was United States versus, versus Germany, and I have no idea
2: who won. Oh, so, the U.S. won two to zero. Oh, yeah, I knew that. No. no. <laughs> <laughs> And then I want to talk about the when you're up against something you can't control, as you were with the social workers, the judges, the uh, the attorneys, um, and they're saying things to you that are really pretty unbelievable. Um, I'm sure you could share maybe a couple of examples in a minute. Um, You know, being... Absolutely out there about doing everything they could to take these children out of your safe and loving home and put them somewhere unsafe and unloving. How do you keep from, as we say in California, how do you keep from going 5150?
3: Ah, uh, well, first of all, I went 5149 and three quarters. Um, <laughs>
2: And for non-Californians, that's, that's the, the number for kind of losing it and needing to be hospitalized.
3: Um, and in my line of work, I've seen a fair amount of 5150s. And, and let me tell you, that place for grief in my heart and that place of anger are sitting right next to each other. Mm. And there was a part of me that could have slipped into either. And here was the thing. I knew I had to keep fighting. I knew I had to keep fighting because if nothing else, I don't know if there's uh, souls or spirits or what. I'd, I'd like to think so, but I don't know. But if there is, I wanted the spirit of those three children to know that there was somebody who fought with everything he had to do whatever he could for them. And and so, yes, you know, horrible. you wanted to know horrible things. So I watched the birth mother... Pinch the children, grab the, ra- pick the children up by their arms. I watched them, her feed grape soda to a boy with a colostomy bag. I watched her do horrible things, and I knew it was a horrible thing for her to raise the children. And I heard the social worker say, Well, she's been completely cured of her schizophrenia, knowing that there's no cure for schizophrenia. It's a managed illness, but it's not a cured illness, and knowing she wasn't managed, I and I had to do whatever I could to keep those children safe, and even if they weren't with me, they would be so closely watched by the court because of what I did that mm-hmm. they would be kept safe. So yes, I spent my life savings on legal bills, and threw everything I could into it in order to do it ultimately having lost. And, uh, and, and what do you do the day after the worst day of your life? You drink, you smoke, you blame God, and then you write a memoir.
2: <laughs> I'm and, sorry I, to I, laugh I, at that moment. <laughs> but <laughs> No, it's true.
3: It's, I, in my, uh, and it was a lesson for me that somewhere in the world I want the triplets to know that yes, this is the most horrible thing ever. Those children being taken from me, but I tell you what, I will stand up again. I will keep going. I could I could sit there with my grief, and I could be justified in being the most miserable person in San Francisco for the next 20 years. But ultimately, that would not have been a good memorial to the triplets. The only memorial to the triplets was, you know what? Just like pigs make the best bacon, I'm, I make a fairly good daddy. Mm-hmm. And I needed to take my daddying skills and move them along the line.
2: Well, I think you're also talking, in a sense, about being at peace with yourself. You did everything you could do, and so it hurts. But I, I can't think of one thing, having read the book, that you have to regret. Uh, you know, I, in your behavior.
3: Um, you know, I have, I have no regrets in my behavior. I have no regrets in Brian's behavior. Uh, I, I, you know. And it changed me on a molecular level. On an atomic level, I became a different person. I, I Before the triplets, I was honestly not a patient person. I was, I was the kind of person who, yes, I was funny and you'd have me at a, at a cocktail party, but you would certainly not invite me to a funeral. Because I'm, I'm not, I, I, I didn't understand how to embrace my own compassion.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: and here's the thing when you have a child with okay so the baby we called Kyle who had an ileostomy and a hole in his heart when we first started taking care of him the only thing we could do was go to the intensive care ward and sit there with him he had a tube in every limb in his body we couldn't pick him up we couldn't take him out of the plastic box we the only thing I could do was put my hand on his chest. That was the only thing that I, that they actually allowed me to do, I don't blame them. Um, was put my hand on his chest. And so one night he's screaming at the top of his lungs and the nurse said, well, why why don't you sing him something? So I said, well, you know, my mother really never sang lullabies. She, She didn't believe in that kind of family. And she said, well, sing something you know. So I said, okay. The only thing I know, I'll start singing show tunes. And so there at three in the morning, I was singing, you'll be swell, you'll be great. And what the heck, Kyle calmed down. Mm -hmm. And all I did was sit there for another hour singing to him. And there is nothing so humbling as knowing that it wasn't my brains, wasn't my brawn, it wasn't my money, it wasn't my charm. It wasn't. It wasn't the quality of my singing voice. It was only the fact that I was th- that I was there. I was present for him, and that is sometimes the only thing you can do for a child or for anyone you love is to be present for them.
2: And that and, was the chain. And it's really. Um you know, we share having learned that being present in loss. Um, so I, I feel connected to you in that way. I I would uh, love for you to share the um, section of the book about your last few hours with them.
3: Well, I just happened to be to that page. I picked up Vivian, who was crying, and all at once, Papa and I We're alone, and the kids were hungry. I heated up three bottles, we fed them Cheerios at the kitchen table, changed them, and then we all sat down on the couch. We spent a few more minutes as a family, with each baby crawling over us on the big old leather couch, and the dogs wagging their tail in the blue bungalow on Winding Way. The doorbell rang, and at the door was the social worker who had just perjured herself. She had a sport sedan parked across the street, engine still running. Papa said, this is it. He picked up Vivian and walked to the car. I picked up Joshua and Kyle and followed. Joshua burbled. Kyle gripped my index finger with all his strength. The social worker said, it has car seats, but I really don't know how they work. Ryan strapped Vivian in and she smiled, thinking this was just another trip to church or the grocery store, and Joshua clapped his hands together. This was his newest trick. I strapped Kyle into the car seat, but he knew. He looked at me with his thousand-year-old eyes and told me he knew that there would never again be another session of reading the cat in the hat to the dogs. There would never again be another session of drinking formula in the rocking chair near the fireplace. Never again would the two of us sit in the dark at three in the morning singing Gilligan's Island's theme. He started crying and I started crying. As we walked back to the house to get their suitcases, the social worker said, There's no room in the car for pointing out the doll that Nurse Vivian had crocheted, or that. The suitcase with the green velour dragon pajamas. Clutched in my hand was the chipped plaster statue of St. Jude. Can they bring just this to watch over them? They won't need it. Now they will have a real mother to watch over them. Kyle still stared at me. I think the old soul in him was telling me that he would survive, that he had lived through heart surgery and infections and an ileostomy, and that he would take care of his brother and sister for me. I whispered to him, It's okay to go on to this new life. May you have every joy possible. It's okay to forget us. But whether you remember or not, you will always be Kyle Thaddeus Fisher Paulson, the boy who lived despite all odds. The social worker slammed the door, the engine roared, and somewhere in the west, the sun dropped out of the sky. <sighs> mm. That's always a hard, hard one to read.
2: Yeah that that feeling the the last line the sun dropped out of the sky that really captures that feeling for me of of an of um a terrible momentous loss like that and i think particularly when you've committed to raising a child and you can't do it <laughs> it, it it feels that way as if that is a feeling. For me, it really captured it.
3: Um, yeah, I mean, and, and, and I think we're alike, and that's exactly how it felt. It felt like it was all dropping out, and what mm-hmm. do I hold on to?
2: So when we get back from the next from this break right now, um, let's talk about, you know, the next morning comes, and there you are, you and Brian, um, facing, I would think, an incredible... Empty space, Um, boy, three babies take up a lot of mental, emotional, and physical space. So let's talk about that when we get back. And listeners, on the break, you can find me at www.weatherandgrief.com with two G's on the Good Grief Host page. And you can find A Song for Lost Angels on Facebook and Fearless Books back after the break.
3: your life your health your network you're listening to voice america health and wellness
4: if you think you've seen online tv before
0: We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up?
3: Real Life Solutions. Voice America Health and Wellness. Mm-hmm.
2: I've been talking with Kevin Thaddeus Fisher-Paulson about his book, A Song for Lost Angels, about the incredible year of parenting triplets and the loss of them after that year. And we were talking before the break, Kevin, about, um, you know, going to sleep and waking up the next day without your children there and what that must have been like for you and Brian together. Was that... um, I would, you know, I know that grief both can bring you a lot closer and kind of break things apart a little bit, too, because it's it's such a solitary thing sometimes to Mm. mourn a loss. How was that for the two of you?
3: You know, you got that exactly right. There are ways in which it brought us together and there are ways in which it there are ways in which we are still repairing rifts. Here was the big one. So he walked. The minute after they left, he said, I'll be back and went to the store. And after not smoking for the entire time a year, he picked up a carton of cigarettes. Um, and that's, Not
2: just a pack, but a carton, huh? Not a carton. Like, oh, no, I
3: we do things with feet first in our family. We're going to do, do it in a big way. Um, and uh, uh, and that was a symbol, you know, of like, you know, Uh.
4: uh
3: Hating the world and and self-destruction and all that. Anyway, and uh, and I, um, and that was the thing which annoyed him about me. Let me tell you what annoyed me about him. I got up the next day and I packed up everything. I drove bassinets and rockers and cribs and diaper genies all over the Bay Area, dropping them up with... Friends who had just had babies and charities that needed them, and I emptied the house. There was an, an almost an entirely blank room, and Brian said, "You you couldn't sit for a minute with that," mm. and so yeah, th- it, that was a part of it. Where we, where for a few weeks we wandered in directions, not knowing what we we're doing, but ultimately always knowing that the other one was there in some part of it. And um I said Brian is famous for telling people that um less than two weeks after the triplets left, I said, you know, Brian, I, I wanna I wanna go back and, into the foster care system. I wanna I wanna adopt. Did other you children. just
2: say less than two weeks?
3: Yeah. But you know, um and Brian said, I, I need I need five minutes. A little
2: process. more time. <laughs> yes. I need a little
3: time to process this. And it was it was because Brian and I are two d- radically different individuals with radically different ways of processing everything including grief. And for me it was like okay, I know the only, I know if I don't go on now, I'm never going to go on. And Brian knew I need to take time to honor where we where we've been before I go to the next. And it was actually um, my, my job sent me to Southern California, which is, if you, if, you, if you want to feel real grief, go to San Diego. And mm-hmm. I was in San Diego for a three-day training conference, and he called me up, and he said, all right. And I said, all right, what? He said, I'm not ready, but that's what I said with the first children. And he said, and you know, you're right. The only way we can do this is to go on and not wallow. And we got ready and we started to move on. It doesn't mean it's over or done for us because there is always, always, always a piece of me and a piece of Brian that's tied to the triplets. If I got a phone call tomorrow morning saying the triplets needed a home, I would just rearrange the entire house all over again and do it. If they asked me for a mortgage, I would find it. They will, it is always a part of the grief that I factor in and carry with me. But I cannot let the shadows be the only thing that define me.
2: There's something in that that sounds this way to me. Tell tell me if this uh, gets close to it. There's a way of honoring that connection you had with them that maybe goes into parenting your children. I mean, it seems the same place to me, listening to you.
3: Um, Yes. It it is a real part of honoring the memory of them and honoring what I gave to them and what they gave to us in that every little bit of patience that I, I, I learned from singing show tunes with my hand on a baby's chest at 3 in the morning, I try to pour into Zane and Aiden so that Zane and Aiden always feel that they are as loved and always know that we will do everything for them that we would have ever done for the triplets. And so the, the patience, the compassion that I learned with the triplets, they get, and they also get the parts of me that, oh, I understand this is a big moment in your life, so let's stop and let's celebrate. Let's celebrate that today, well, last night we were up, at it's school year's out, and so Zane woke up at nine thirty at night, and his last baby tooth fell out. So we got up and we celebrated. I went, I got him a glass of milk, got myself a glass of milk, and we toasted the last of his baby teeth, which are called milk mm. teeth, by the way.
2: <laughs> Hence the milk, huh? <laughs>
3: Hence the milk. Thank God they weren't called scotch teeth. And and um, and then we went outside and looked at Venus and Jupiter being in their closest conjunction for years. Um, and we enjoyed every bit. Every sip of the milk, we enjoyed Every twinkle of that star. Because I know uh, at any moment there could be loss. I have to enjoy this moment as best I can every single moment.
2: I would love for you to read um, about Zane coming into your family because um, now that he's part of our conversation, um, I think it captures moving forward. Even when we, we're we still experiencing losses, uh, I relate that actually to, you know, meeting my second wife after my first wife died. There's, there's a fierceness to live in a way.
3: Um, okay, meeting Zane. I, I've already given you the setup, which is that I was ready to jump back in long before Brian was. And there was a child who had been... Um, Identified all the social workers said this child is exactly like you. So we met him, and we had an overnight visit with him. And when he was coming back from the overnight visit, the social worker called and said, "Um, "We're not moving back in that with that foster family. He's moving in today." So Brian responded to crises much better than I. I've seen him change an ileostomy bag on two hours sleep. Drive from New York to Maine in a blizzard and dance a pas de deux on a broken ankle. Papa calmly said, we can do this. Pick up the baby. We'll get the groceries tomorrow. Oh, and by the way, his name is Zane. Zane Thaddeus. And thus, a family was born. Somewhere in a China cabinet, a St. Jude statue was smiling that yet another Paulson Child had the same middle name, and the patron saint of the impossible had another impossible Paulson to look out for. Eight or nine years from now, when he gets around to asking me how he got his name, I will undoubtedly concoct a charming story about Zane Gray being a distant cousin, or my great love for Citizen Kane, or how it was an acronym for Zsa, Zsa Gabor, Arlene Francis, Nanette Fabre, and Eve Arden, our favorite actresses. I might even say it's the masculine form of Jane. I might say that we picked Zane Thaddeus because it can be abbreviated to Zeus. I might ask Allah Betty Davis, what ever happened to baby Zane? But the truth of the matter is that we liked the feel of the name Zane. Solid, one syllable, unique. And we of course were daddy and papa again
2: I know that that uh, everybody who gets in touch with you to talk with you about your book must be uh, many people must be so happy for you that you get to parent
3: well I- Many people, perhaps Zane and Aiden excluded, since I don't them have their iPads today.
2: <laughs> Depending on the day or the moment, huh? <laughs>
3: Depending whether they actually got to use their iPad and watch Marvel Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Those are really the determination about whether or not I'm a good parent.
2: <laughs> well, we can't, we can't, the children can't judge it, can they?
3: <laughs> well, they, they keep trying to judge it, and I keep telling them, I tell you what, when you're 18, you get a vote.
2: Um, I, th- I, I think you need to wait longer. <laughs> <laughs> I've I gotten think. to be a much med- better parent between 20 and 22. My youngest is 22 now.
3: <laughs> well, I, I, then you can quote to your youngest, Mark Twain, who said, When I was 14, I was humiliated at, at what an ignorant oaf my father was. When I turned 21, I was surprised to see how much he'd learned in seven years.
2: Yes, I've heard that quote. It seems I, I've I've quoted that quote to myself in my mind. <laughs> when you when you know you're doing the right thing, and of course your child is not pleased with it, um, those are the moments where you have to call that into uh, into being. <laughs>
3: Well, Zane is slipping into those teen years right now, and he's at the age where he calls into question everything about me and our lives and everything. Um, where, and this is in, in, in adoptive families, you know this, where he suddenly points out every minute that, you know, you're gay, he's straight, you're white, he's black, every single difference, and, I remind him we're the only four Fisher Paulsons in the whole world. So no matter how physically different we are or what choices are or whether you like chocolate ice cream and I like chocolate chip, no matter what, we're still the same family. I we were he had just learned a particularly uncharming word to describe homosexuals. Uh, and used it at the kitchen table the other morning. And I said to him, Zane, this family, we are like a bumblebee. Scientifically, engineers have proven that the wings of a bumblebee do not generate enough lift in order to, for it to hover. And he said, what do you mean by that? I said, scientifically, a bumblebee cannot fly. But look at the lilac tree outside our house. Nobody ever told that bumblebee. He said, what does that mean, Dad? And I said, what it means is we're a family that functions on love, not because we logically fit together. And scientifically, these four people and these four rescue dogs are not a matched set. But we, we fly, we soar, because we're a family like no other family has ever been. And he said, I take it back. I said, okay, you can use whatever words you want. You just need to know.
2: You know, I I used to run groups for LGBT people considering parenting. Mm. And um, uh, one of the really important aspects was um, make sure you're at peace with yourself because you will be challenged. Uh, You know, your kid's going to find the thing you're not at peace with and test it. Oh, yes. <laughs> and Children. that's any kid. That's not, that's not kids, you know, of, of um, LGBT people. That's every kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the way in which we stand up to it has something to do with our relationships with ourselves, I, I do believe.
3: Well, ul- ultimately, and Zane hates this, <laughs> Zane, Zane hates that any argument ends with, but you know I love you. <laughs> and he's like, I, I hate that. And like, no, that's no, true. That's how we, I said, cause it doesn't matter. We can disagree about anything, but I love you. Yeah. And I said, and ultimately you love me and that's what goes on. And I said, so we don't, I don't have to be logical and I'm never going to, I am never going to argue, win the argument about why I made chicken with carrots tonight for dinner. I'm never going to win
2: that argument. <laughs> That's a great place to end. Kevin, I want to thank you for being here today. I had such a good time talking with you, and hopefully we'll have coffee, tea, or lunch or something.
3: Uh, so, let's uh, definitely do coffee. I
2: would. Yeah. To- uh, it, let me just tell you, listeners, next week I'll have David Peltzer with me to talk about his book, Too Close to Me, about the challenges of living a happy adult life after being a survivor of extreme childhood abuse. His best-selling first book, A Child Called It?, told the story of that childhood. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation.
1: Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief.